Thanks for tuning in to the Calvary Now podcast. At Calvary, our mission is to set people's hope in God and engage in the mission of God. Today, we're back in our study in the book of Mark, where we see how Jesus' teachings turned the perception of the kingdom of God upside down. Good morning, church family. Again, it is great to see you. And hey, let me say, if you are our guest this morning, let me introduce myself. We're really, first of all, really glad you're here. My name is Will Taburin. I'm one of the pastors here. And I would love uh, an opportunity to get to know you after the service or maybe out in the lobby. And if you haven't had a chance to stop by our Next Steps area or our first-time guest tent, we'd love for you to do that. We've got a small gift for you. We'd love to share with you some information about our church, about what we value, about what we're about, what we believe God is doing here at Calvary. And so we're really glad you're here. Let me say to you, welcome. And if you have your Bibles this morning, let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10 with me. We are, as a church family, right in the middle of a series through Mark's gospel. We spent a lot of time last fall studying Mark's gospel together, and this spring, winter into spring through Easter, we're looking at the back half of Mark's gospel. And as I shared with you, when you come to chapter 11, you realize that there you see the beginning of the Passion Week, the week that leads up to Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. And thus far in Mark's gospel, we've been watching as Mark's helped us really come to understand more fully who Jesus is and what he's about. We've seen that he is the king who has all authority. We've watched his authority over the spiritual as he has healed the sick. He's called the lame to get up and walk. We even saw how he brought Jairus' daughter, raised her from the dead. We've seen that Jesus is the king with all spiritual authority as he casts out demons. And then when people bring him, bring them the sick and the lame to him, he has the ability to forgive sins, which is a declaration that ultimately all sins are against him. And so he's saying, listen, I am the king with all authority. And not just that, Mark has been helping us see what it actually means to live under Jesus's rule and his reign, to understand the values, to understand the ways of his kingdom. And here in chapter 10, Jesus, through some really specific encounters, helps us to see that even more clearly, to understand the values and the ways of his kingdom. We watch as Jesus has an interaction with some religious leaders who ask him questions about marriage and divorce. We see a rich young ruler coming to him and wanting to know what it really looks like to follow him. And Jesus helps him see the dangers of the love of money or putting anything above himself. And so Jesus is showing them this and he's helping us see what we say all the time as a family. And that is an encounter with Jesus changes everything. It changes the way that we see things. It changes what we value. It changes what we see as most important in our lives. It changes the way that we live. And so this morning, what I wanna do is continue in Mark chapter 10, and I want us to look carefully at verses 32 through 45. And here, what we see, many scholars believe, is the most upside down thing that Jesus says. In fact, many will believe that this is kind of the key, the focal point to all of Mark's gospel found here in verses 42 to 45. Look at what the scripture says. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pause as we do after the reading of your word each week to acknowledge that your word is truth, that in your kindness to us and your graciousness to us, you have revealed yourself and your plan for all of redemptive history to us through your word. Father, we thank you that you're not a God who is far off, but you are a God who is near. God, you are a God who engages Lord, you are God who's told us about who you are and what you were doing and how we are to live under your kingdom and your rule. And so, Father, I pray that as we come to this incredibly poignant teaching of Jesus, Lord, that our hearts would be open, our minds would be open to receive that which you want us to hear. And by faith, we would respond with wisdom and courage to that which you're calling us to do. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my own heart would be pleasing to you for you are my rock and my redeemer. Father, I pray for Pastor Ryan as he preaches at our West Campus this morning and Pastor Samuel in our Spanish-speaking campus as we continue to pray for the churches in our community, the pastors who are faithfully leading this morning. Father, I pray for Steve Quartz at Center Grove and for David Beatty at River Oaks, for Brandon Mercer at Redemption Hill and others. God, that you would move in those churches that we might pray to see a movement in our city. God, for we know that we need many great churches passionately pursuing you. So God, would you do it, we pray, and we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, this morning, church family, as we consider these like really profound implications from the verses that we've just read, I want us to see what you already know is that this challenge from Jesus, it doesn't just come out of nowhere, right? There's a context into which Jesus is saying this. And so here's what I wanna do this morning. I just wanna simply walk through the text with you. We're gonna go back to verse 32 and we're gonna go verse by verse and I wanna make some observations and application along the way all the while building up to what we see Jesus saying to us in what we've just read. So if you have your Bible, look with me at verse 32, where the scripture says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed and those who followed were afraid and and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. See, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and after three days, he will rise. So you know, as we've been walking through Mark, I've shared this with you on a couple of occasions that we find in Mark chapters eight, nine, and 10, what most scholars believe is the great discipleship discourse where on three different occasions, Jesus clearly articulates to them why he has come and where he is going. He's on his way to Jerusalem and there he's gonna suffer and he's gonna die. And so on three different occasions in eight, nine, and 10, he tells them this all the while helping them understand what it means to live under his kingdom. And so I get this picture. There's this image in my head when I read this. And I wanna ask you to do for something for me today that I normally ask you to do when we're reading narrative like this. I want you to do your best to put yourself in the moment. I want you to do your best to put yourself on the road. I want you to do your best to see Jesus there. And I get this picture in my head that really is actually quite fascinating to think of being a disciple of Jesus, 
looking ahead, and there's my Savior who's walking. And he's got his eyes fixed to the hills. He's got his eyes fixed on Jerusalem. And he knows what's going to happen there. And he puts one foot in front of the other, and he makes his way. And he tells them. He pulls them aside, and he says, let me remind you of why I'm going to go and do this. You see, remember all that I've been telling you. We're on our way to Jerusalem where I'm going to be mocked and I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be condemned and I'm going to be handed over to be crucified. But after three days, don't worry because I'm going to rise again. You know, you hear it. And we have the luxury of reading the scripture from all the events, these events having transpired, but you read it and it's really pretty clear, right? Jesus is not using veiled language that they can't understand. It's direct It's to the point, it's clear. And you would think, you'd think after the third time hearing this, with this kind of clarity, that they would get it, that they would know what they're getting, what Jesus is getting ready to do, that they would know why they're on their way. But as we're going to see, they still don't. Look with me at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, I want you to remember something here just for a second. You know that Peter, James, and John are the ones who are closest to Jesus, right? They're the ones who've been most intimate with him, had the most intimate interactions with him, been the closest to him. They were there with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They watched all of that unfold in Mark chapter nine. So you know that they are really close. And I want you to remember, as you think about James and John asking, getting ready to make this request of Jesus, remember that most scholars believe that Peter is is actually the one who is kind of sharing with Mark all of these events later. So you can almost hear the disdain in Peter's voice, right? Hey, Mark, let me remind you. Let me remind you of what James and John did without me, right? So we see them. They come to him and they come to Jesus and they're like, hey, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Now, again, if you're making your way with Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, you can almost see this unfold, right? Because you know, you know James and John had to be thinking about this. You know they had to have had some conversations about this where they're wrestling in their mind, hey, what's gonna be the best point, James, where we go over and we ask Jesus, you know, to, to help us sit at the right and to the left of him. So you can almost get this picture in your head where James kind of nudges John, John winks at him, and they're like, hey, let's, they slide up to Jesus and they sidle up beside him. And they say to Jesus, hey, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. You know, I think about it and I think it's kind of funny in a way. And it's funny in a way because it's not hard for us to think of times when we've done the same thing, right? When we have wanted something from our parents or from our spouse or from our boss, and we look for that perfect time to try to nuzzle up to them and get our way. So they pull, up, pull Jesus aside and they make this request of him. And it was John Stott who said, the brother's request is surely the worst, the most blatantly self-centered prayer that's ever been prayed. Jesus, do for us whatever we ask of you. Look with me at verse 36. And he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? 
And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. You know, we're often pretty quick to jump on James and John and be pretty critical of them, right? But when you look at what they ask, they at least get one thing right about Jesus. He is the king. And he is the one who will rule forever in his kingdom. And so they're not wrong about that. But their request of Jesus is really pretty revealing. When they say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory, man, it's telling us a lot about what they think about greatness, about what greatness looks like for them. For on the one hand, their request reveals their assumptions about the nature of greatness. Their desire for one to sit at the right and the other on the left reveals that they think greatness is about position. It's about power. It's about success. It's about fulfilling your ambition. One author pointed out, it's like one was asking to be the chief of staff and the other was asking to be the prime minister. So we're seeing their assumptions about what greatness actually is, but it's not just that. It also reveals to us in their request the nature of their true desires. You see, it's not just that they had this perspective on greatness, of position and power and success. Deep down, these disciples want it. They crave it. They desire it. It's what they're longing for. It's what they're looking for. Jason Meyer, who's a pastor and theologian, wrote in his commentary, he said, they are not humbly asking to see. You you think after Jesus has just said this, right? After he's just unpacked, like this is why we're going to Jerusalem. You might think that James and John would pull him after they've seen the Mount of Transfiguration, that they might pull Jesus aside and said, listen, Jesus, help us see. Help us see what you see. Help us have the eyes to see those things. Help us to see what it looks like to live under your kingdom. Help us to understand that. But Meyer pointed out, they're not asking Jesus to see, they're asking Jesus to be seen. And that is fundamentally different. So in the end, their request reveals that they're still missing the point about Jesus and the nature of his kingdom. And when you stop and think about it, the irony is thick in their request. Here they are coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, Will you do whatever we ask for you to do? And here's what we ask. We want you to elevate us to the left and to the right. They're asking to be elevated to the left and the right while Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem to be elevated on a cross where he would suffer and he would die. And so the scripture goes on to teach us in verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? You know, when you read this verse, it might seem on the surface a little bit confusing. What does Jesus really mean here? So it's important to understand that Jesus obviously is speaking metaphorically. When he references the cup in scripture, we know that the cup is a reference for suffering. Perhaps you might remember, and we'll see this later in Mark's gospel when Jesus is there, And it's the night of his betrayal. And you see Jesus praying before his heavenly father. And what does he pray? Abba, father, all things are possible for you. Remove this what, church? Cup. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. 
The cup is a metaphor for suffering. Jesus knew what he was getting ready to do. When he prays that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knows that just in a few hours, he was going to hang on the cross. And God the Father was going to take all the wrath and the judgment and the condemnation. He would fill the cup of his wrath, and Jesus would take that cup, and he would drink it all the way down to the dregs for us. So he's saying, James and John, are you willing to drink from the cup that I'm going to drink from? Are you willing to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Baptism here obviously isn't a reference to water baptism. It's a metaphor for being plunged into calamity. And so we get the picture. Jesus is once again telling them in no uncertain terms what he's getting ready to do. He's going to be submerged and plunged into suffering. Remember, church family, that all of the Old Testament has been pointing to this moment. All of the Old Testament is pointing to Christ, and the New Testament climaxes in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus is saying, James and John, are you able to drink from this cup and be baptized in the same way? And the obvious answer to that is no. You can't do that. This is the reason for which I came. And then look with me at verse 39. And they said to him, we are able, right? I mean, that's perfect, right? James and John are unsurprisingly are like, yep, we're ready. Like they still are just completely clueless at this point. It's like one author said, these disciples are a sad and tragic mix of ignorance and arrogance, right? They're like, yep, we're ready for this, Jesus. And then look what Jesus says. And he said to him, to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. You say, well, well, it seems like you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. You just said that they can't do that. You're right. They can't do what Jesus came to do. They can't drink the cup of God's wrath and be submerged into the suffering that Christ would go through. But what Jesus does say to them is that you will suffer. You will go through hardship. In fact, we know and we read from the scriptures that James was ultimately beheaded at the hand of Herod Antipas. We know that John was exiled to the island of Patmos where he would write the Revelation, right? We know that they did, in fact, go through deep suffering. And Jesus says, in a way, you will drink the cup of suffering and be submerged into suffering, but not like me. And then Jesus here helps them to see that it's not his decision ultimately who will sit on his right or who will sit on his left, but it's the Father's to decide. We already know, Jesus has already taught us that in the scriptures, in the scriptures that the first will be last and the last shall be first. And he's saying, God, the Father's prepared this seat for those whom he will. And so he goes on, the scripture goes on to say, and when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. You know, you get this picture in your head. The other disciples aren't mad that James and John wanted the wrong thing. They're not like totally upset, like, man, I can't believe you just asked this. Don't you know? Don't you get it yet? Man, they're totally miffed, but they're miffed because they wish they were the ones who would have gotten to Jesus first. It made me think of all the times when I was a kid, when one of my siblings would manipulate the situation better than I could to get what they want ultimately getting their way. And I think of how mad that used to make me. And I think that's exactly what's transpiring here. 
You've got 10 who are looking at the two, wishing that they had gotten there first. And so both the original question and request and the response by the other 10 show how the whole group was missing it. Missing the point when it came to Jesus, missing the point about his kingdom. And so there, as they make their way to Jerusalem, put yourself there, Jesus calls them together. And he has a little conversation with them and he says this. And Jesus called to them, verse 42, and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Friends, Jesus is drawing a parallel between their desires and worldly desires, between their thinking and worldly thinking, helping them see in their request and in their response that ultimately they are no different. The disciples are wanting to know, how can I rise above others? How can I gain authority? How can I gain position? How can I gain power? I love how Tim Keller said it. He says, Jesus is talking about how most people try to influence society to get their way. They lord it over others. They seek power and control. If I have the power, if I have the wealth, if I have the connections, then I can get my way. I don't think any of you would disagree with me that we live in a culture that is preoccupied with self a culture that myopically looks out for our own interests, a culture that is consumed with status, desperately tracking likes and dislikes and followers, a culture that places the highest valuations on things that are transient, but not eternal. And because of this, like here's how the world operates. Worldly wisdom says, well, the stronger you are, the better you are. So over and over again, you see people leading through power and coercion. We turn on the news and we see that. We see it all over the place. We see it in the political arena. We see it in our workplaces. In times, you've even seen it, and I pray it would never be true of our church, but you even see it within the evangelical church. People using power and coercion to get their own way. We see it all the time. And that's because that lure and that draw is strong. Worldly wisdom says, the stronger you are, the better. Worldly wisdom says, if a little power and authority is good, then a good thing, then a lot of power and a lot of authority is a great thing. Worldly wisdom says, I need to look out for myself first. So we pursue power, authority, and influence sometimes at the expense of others, but usually at least at the exclusion of others. And I would imagine if we slowed down a little bit this morning and we asked ourselves, is this true of me? Then all of us might be able to think of some times when it's true of us, when we've sought to gain authority and position and power in a self-serving way. Maybe in our workplaces, when we've pushed for a promotion and we've pushed for the next pay grade or the next position, or in our marriages, when we've wanted control and we've wanted to be served rather than to serve, or with our kids, when we've used our position as parents to have them serve 
us. I was thinking about asking the Lord to help me see this, and I kind of chuckled a little bit. Blake, my son, is probably not going to be happy with me telling this, but there are times when you, we keep a, a refrigerator downstairs that kind of keeps some drinks in it. And so, man, most of the time, I just don't want to get up to go down there and get it. So I'll just say, Blake, and it's like Pavlov's dogs, man. This is like, he just knows. And he's like, dad's getting ready to make me go downstairs and get him something to drink. Hey, Blake, will you run, will you run downstairs and grab, grab something for the family? You know, <laughs> grab something from the family and bring that up here for us. You know, but you, it's a small thing, but I think, man, how often does this just naturally seep into life? Listen, Jesus is saying, this is what the world values and this is what worldly leaders do. But Jesus says, I want you to see a better way, a different way. That's why he says in verse 43, and you should underline this in your Bibles, but it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. Not so in my kingdom. Now I want you to notice something really, really important here. Jesus does not rebuke their, request, their quest for greatness. He doesn't say, your problem is that you desire greatness. Rather, he redefines the quest by redefining what greatness is. He says, yeah, you should pursue greatness, but I'm gonna redefine what greatness is for you. I'm gonna redefine what greatness actually looks like, not from a worldly standpoint, but from a kingdom standpoint. And he, refine, he redefines greatness right here in verses 43 and 44, which we read at the beginning. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And who, whosoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So here's how Jesus redefines greatness. He says to them, listen, in God's upside down kingdom, True greatness is found in service and sacrifice. If you wanna be great in the kingdom of God, then you serve. You wanna be great in the kingdom of God, you sacrifice. I've heard it said, the measure of one's greatness is found in the extent to which a person is willing to live in the service of others. Can I say that again? The measure of one's greatness is found in the extent to which a person is willing to live in the service and sacrifice of others. You see, Jesus is saying, you wanna be great, then give your life in selfless sacrifice and service for other people. Greatness comes not through having the right position, church family. Greatness is gonna come through having the right posture, a posture of a humble servant, the posture of one who looks at the needs of others and puts the needs of others above their own, seeing things through eyes of compassion. You see, Jesus knows that influence that is gained through power and control, influence that's gained that way never changes anything for the good in the long term. If you lead with power and control, in the end, you serve self. In the end, you're gonna use people towards your own selfish ends. In the end, you're gonna either exclude people or you're gonna run over them. He said, this way of the world is impotent in its ability to change hearts, but... 
If you choose to use your influence and your position in the service of others, even if they disagree with what your core convictions are, they'll begin to trust you because they'll see that you're not in it for yourself. I absolutely love this quote, again, from Jason Meyer, who said this. He said he teaches them about the upside-down kingdom once again. True greatness is not about how high you can climb as you step on and over as many people as possible. It is about how low you can go in serving as many people as possible. You want to know what greatness is? How low can you go? You want to know what greatness is? How can you serve? You want to know what greatness is? How can you sacrifice? And here's the thing. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how educated you are. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter what your position or your station or your influence in your life or in your job is. Every one of us can serve. It was Martin Luther King Jr. who said, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject or verb agree to serve. You don't have to know Plato and Aristotle. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. My prayer is that as we listen to the words of Jesus, our hearts will be stirred as we genuinely see the better way the better way in our workplaces, the better way in our marriages, the better way with our children, the better way in our schools, the better way in our friendships. But I also wanna be very clear. Walking this road won't be easy. In fact, it will be very difficult. There are lots of reasons I think it's difficult, but I wanna share with you two that I think are most obvious. The first reason it's so difficult is because our hearts aren't naturally wired this way. My heart is wired to serve self. That's why Jesus would say, you need a new heart. That's why he promises to give you a new heart with new affections and new desires because my heart and my affections and my desires are only and always focused on self. That's why when Paul would talk about this battle that rages between your flesh and your spirit, it's constantly It's constantly taking place. It's constantly going on. So I know it's gonna be difficult because my hardwiring is for self, but I also know it's gonna be difficult because sacrifice is at the heart of real love. Putting the needs of others above our own, sacrificing for others will always come at great cost to ourselves. There's a cost to it. You know, I was talking to Julie about this yesterday and we were talking about this morning and just this message. And we were talking about how, you know, sometimes with you have friends in your life, maybe friends that you, you've shared a long time with, you have similar interests and you're at sim- similar station in life and, you know, you're just naturally intersected with them for a long time. And you look at those friendships and you're like, man, those friendships are easy. You know, they're, they're easy, they're, 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 they're natural And in part, sometimes those friendships are easy because they just don't need a lot from you. They don't demand a lot from you. They don't have need from you. But that's not the way it is most of the time. Every day in our spheres of influence, in our homes and at our jobs, at our school, we're constantly interacting with people who have needs, some physical, others emotional, and others deeply spiritual. And to enter into those relationships not the easy ones, to enter into those relationships will be costly. 
It'll cost us our comfort. It'll cost us our convenience. It'll cost us our time. It'll cost us our money. It'll cost us our emotional energy all the time to really enter in and to embrace this vision of greatness in the kingdom. I, I question whether to share this. I, I did share it with the early service, but it kind of hit me this morning a little bit. I normally get up pretty early on Sundays and I was driving in and I usually leave the house about 6.15. It's dark and this morning it was rainy and the roads were wet. And so I'm coming down Peace Haven Road from Clemens and I drive past and I can see in the dark, you know, I come up on this guy on the side of the road and he's standing there, he's got no flashers on and I actually almost kind of hit him. But I could kind of see and as I saw the car, I saw him. So I was like, man, there's a guy on the side of the road. And so I did what maybe some of us would do. I drove right on by. I drove right on by. And then like five seconds later, it was like the Holy Spirit was like, hey, big fella, you remember what you're talking about this morning? And I'm like, yeah, but I gotta get to the office. I need to pray. I need to read over my notes, read my Bible. I mean, I've got some pretty important stuff I gotta do this morning. I get to the bridge at 421 and it's like, hey, are you gonna be obedient or are you not? So I turned around and I drove back in the dark, rolled down my window and he's standing out there. I said, hey man, what's going on? He's like, I ran out of gas. I said, well, you need a ride? And he's like, no, I, well, he's like, I just need to get somewhere, you know, to whatever, not important. I, I said, well, can I get you some gas? He said, yeah. I said, I don't have a tank. He said, I got one. So he handed me a tank and I drove down and I filled it up and I came and I dropped it off. Now, I use that example of twofold. One, it's because I didn't want to be inconvenienced. And two, but to be inconvenienced, it's a little bit costly. Not a big cost, right? Not a lot of money, but a little bit of money, a little bit of time, a little bit of it, giving up some other things. And I use that illustratively just to say, Man, if we're gonna enter in, if we're gonna serve our community, if we're gonna embrace local partners, it's gonna mean sacrifice on our part. It means at times that we have to become drained so other people can be filled. I read earlier this week and thought that this is absolutely true. We know that anyone who has ever done anything that made a difference for us, a parent, a teacher, a mentor, a friend, a spouse, sacrificed in some way, stepped in and accepted some hardship so that we would not get hit with that hardship ourselves. That's what Jesus is saying. And so when he calls us to this, I know that it's gonna be hard. So how can I evaluate this in my own life? How can I try to better understand, well, am I embracing a worldly view of greatness or a kingdom view of greatness? So I'd like to offer you just three questions this morning. And they're not intended to be exhaustive, but I hope they will in some way be helpful to help you evaluate that and to discern that. The first question is this, how do I serve? How do I serve? More specifically, is there anything that I believe is beneath me to do? That I just feel is beneath me? Are there tasks that you judge to be beneath you? And perhaps the best way to know this is, well, how do you respond when you're asked to do certain things? 
Do you do it with joy? Or you're like, well, I guess I have to do it, but I'm not going to really like it. Is there a, a joy in seeing the needs of others met? So when you're at home or at work or at school, do you see a need that exists and step into that? Or do you wait to be asked for it? How do you serve? And is there anything that you believe is beneath you to do? And I know my sense is that most of us are going to say, I don't think so. But I want you to lean into that and really ask. And really ask the Holy Spirit to help you see that. Secondly, who do I serve? And let me ask it this way. Is there anyone I believe is beneath me to serve? Is there anyone I believe is beneath me? Is there anyone that I'm keeping at arm's length because they just seem too needy? Listen, it's easy to be around the people who are like us. And there are, there are times when you know that entering into this conversation or entering into that relationship is going to be costly. We all know what it feels like in those moments when, man, you see it and you know it's coming and you just kind of want to walk away. Is there anyone that you would say, man, they're just kind of beneath me that I'm keeping at arm's length to serve? Is there anyone that you disagree with politically or morally that you're withholding love from, that you're unwilling just to enter into? Let me remind you, I read this years ago in a book that I wouldn't recommend, but as always, we say all the time when you're reading books, eat the fish and spit out the bones. You're not going to like everything you read. But the author said this. He said, you know, God never withholds love from you to teach you a lesson. And I'm like, man, that's true. And I shouldn't do the same. To withhold love from people, I need to enter in to that. And then the last question I would ask is, well, what do I ask God for? I think about what the scripture says in verse 35 when James and John say to Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Our first reaction might be, well, I can't believe that they would just walk up to Jesus and ask them to do whatever I want, whatever they want. Yet I would imagine if we're honest, there might be times when we treat God like that too, wanting him to do for us whatever we ask. As I reflected on this this week, it caused me to realize that at times I feel like I'm perhaps no different than the disciples here. Missing the point about who Jesus is and treating God at times like a genie, ultimately seeing Jesus as a means to, to my own ends. Does that ever feel true to you? If God gave me, let me ask it this way, if God gave me what I asked for, would it lead to worldly greatness or kingdom greatness? If God gave you what you were praying for, would it lead to worldly greatness or would it lead to kingdom greatness? If my requests were recorded, just like James and John's were, what would they reveal? I can't remember who said it, but I remember that it hit me pretty hard. That said, would we look like shameless gold diggers if our requests were made known? If I were honest, what would it reveal about my own heart and how I would define greatness? What does it reveal about us? How do I serve? Who do I serve? What do I ask God for? Honest answers will help us assess whether or not I'm pursuing greatness in the kingdom or greatness in Christ's kingdom. But I also realize that an honest assessment of these questions may reveal that things are off, that deep down we're struggling not to embrace a worldly vision of greatness. And perhaps maybe it even feels impossible to selflessly serve and sacrifice for the good of other people. Well, I've got some good news for you and I've got some bad news for you as I close. 
The bad news is, it is impossible. And you'll never do that on your own. The good news, however, is the more you see yourself as a sinner who's been ransomed by King Jesus, the more selfless and sacrificial you'll become. You see, the key is found right there in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, there is so much here and much we could just spend time mining and looking at his glorious riches. But let me just say this about this verse, that Jesus, the son of man, came not to be served, but to serve. The highest person took the lowest place so that he might ransom us. You know, I shared with you that on three different occasions in Mark 8, 9, and 10, Jesus tells them what he's gonna do. This is the only occasion where Jesus tells them why. And the reason he's going is that he might give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom is a financial term. It's used meaning to pay a debt. And scholars point out that in Jesus's day, if you owed a debt, you could sell yourself into slavery to pay it off or someone could pay that debt for you. And so here's the thing, because of our sins, we have a debt that we could never pay off. And this is what makes the gospel so, so beautiful for us. Jesus steps in and he dies in our place and he pays for our debt. And he pays for that debt, not with gold or silver. He pays for that debt with his precious blood. And so here's what I want you to see. It's that if I've been ransomed by Jesus, if you've been bought by him, purchased by him, and you've trusted him, listen, that is the most important thing about who you are. It's the most important thing about you. There is nothing else that is greater or more significant about me than this. Not my education, not my wealth, not my accomplishments or my failures. There is nothing more important about us then that we are of a child of the Most High God, a child that he calls son and daughter, and nothing, friends, can change that. And because that is true, it frees us to live selflessly and sacrificially. It keeps us from needing the approval of people because we already have the approval of Jesus. It keeps us and frees us from needing position and power and worldly greatness for our lives to matter because we're fully known and loved and perfectly accepted in Christ. He's purchased your freedom and now you can be free to pursue a vision of kingdom greatness that makes much of Jesus and is for the flourishing of every relationship we have. Our friends, our spouses, our children, our coworkers, our employees, it changes everything. My deepest prayer for us as a people is that when we think of who we are, the very first thought that we would have of ourselves is that we are deeply known and loved by him because he's ransomed you. And that changes everything. Amen. Thanks again for joining us on the Calvary Now podcast. We desire that Calvary would be a place of belonging and hope where no one walks alone. If you're not already, we would love for you to join us in person at either of our campuses on Sunday mornings at 9 or 1030. For more information, visit us at calvarynow.com.